church, if you'll take God's word, God's wonderful treasure of a book, and turn to Psalm chapter 90 this morning, Psalm chapter 90. What a great way to set the table, be a song with what we're going to sing in this brief psalm. Church, as you make your way to Psalm 90, if you'll bow your head and close your eyes, we know if anything profitable is going to take place from this morning, it's because God will be gracious to move among us and cause it to be so. One of the most significant ways we express that is that we plead and ask for His assistance. So let's do that now this morning with sincerity. Father, we thank you so much that we can unequivocally announce and declare from the top of our lungs that you are good and faithful. You will keep us day and night. Lord, we want to place ourselves now under the authority and ministry of your wonderful, wonderful word. And ask that you would help us to announce with Moses, Lord, you are our dwelling place in all generations. Father, we thank you in advance for this time. We pray that you would use it as you will. May every sin, ulterior motive, and distraction be denounced and removed. And may your spirit have your way among us. We pray for our church family who are not here. They are ailing or sick or staying away because they have been around those who are ailing and sick. Lord, we pray for them as you bring them back to our fold. We look forward to them rejoining us. We pray that you would also equally minister to them as well this morning as they are worshiping from afar. We pray for our pastor and his family that you would keep them safe and help them recover. Lord, we pray this all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You're taking notes this morning. The main idea of Psalm 90 is the following. Faithful believers, which is what we all want to be, faithful believers are taught to number their days in light of God's eternality, sovereignty, and mercy. Faithful believers are taught to number their days in light of God's eternality, sovereignty, and mercy. Let's read this morning Psalm 90, which is titled, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Moses declared, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew, and toward evening it fades and weathers away. For we have been consumed by your anger. And by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be, and be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. 
Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for, confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Faithful believers are taught to number their days in light of God's eternality, sovereignty, and mercy. Now, before we unpack Psalm 90 that we just read, let's for a moment connect to our need for this psalm. Of course, we, we know and we say we need this psalm because, after all, it is the Word of God. But there's a massive life-altering difference in actually feeling our need for this psalm in the depth of our being. You see, Psalm 90 is the only psalm in the Psalter that is attributed to Moses, but it's not the only piece of poetry that Moses wrote. There are two other songs of Moses in the Bible. You have Exodus 15, where Israel is delivered out of Egypt, and Pharaoh and his armies are drowned in the heart of the Red Sea. The other song Moses recited was before his ascension to Mount Nebo, where he was about to die, which we read earlier in Deuteronomy 32. The first song was pure, exhilarating praise and a joyful celebration of God and who he is. And the second was a painful reminder of their past rebellion against God and his subsequent judgment upon them. Psalm 90 is really encompassing all of those responses in one as it's a reflection and occasion in Moses' life before his death. A reflection with purpose. You see, the historical setting of the psalm is best understood to be the incidents recorded in Numbers chapter 20. And what is the book of Numbers about? It's about Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. What should have been a relatively so short sojourn for a few months for Moses and Israel, traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land, turned into a 40-year stroll of tragic epic proportions. The people of God went in endless circles in the wilderness, going absolutely nowhere and dying off in the process before reaching their destination across the Jordan River. As a result, church, they were living in shame, producing defeat and despair and disappointment and even death. In fact, some of the events of Numbers chapter 20 are even being painfully reflected over by Moses here in Psalm 90. You have the death of Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, but you also have the sin of Moses himself in striking the rock in the wilderness, which subsequently kept him from entering into the promised land himself. And in the midst of these type of difficult circumstances, church, we have to ask, what is it that Moses does? He lifts up his heart to heaven in order to anchor his soul to God. His life is not lived from this defeatist stance because he could not enter the promised land. His life was not ruled by a heart of bitterness. No, quite the opposite. This man of God looked to God afresh so that he might reestablish an eternal perspective. If I could just encourage you this morning, I don't know where you're coming from this day. But all of us need this type of steady activity in our life, do we not? Lifting up our hearts to heaven so that we might anchor our souls to God. It is a true statement that all of you will face difficult circumstances and trying times. And because of this, all of us need to live our lives with the spiritual resolve that sings that song that Isaac Watts sang. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. North Lake, all of us are called to live life with an eternal perspective. We have to ask, well, in light of that being the case, what does living life with such a perspective look like? To that end, let's unpack Psalm 90 this morning. You see, living life with an eternal, proper perspective requires a number of things. Number one, it entails taking refuge in the eternal God. 
taking refuge in the eternal God. Verses 1 through 2, Moses acknowledges that from eternity past to eternity future, God is God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from even from everlasting to everlasting. Underline this phrase in your Bible. You are God. People of God, do you not love the profundity and power of that simple, simple statement? You are God. See, one of the realities here that Moses reflects on in Psalm 90 is the brevity of life. Aaron and Miriam's death were a massive reminder of human mortality. He had watched generations come and go in the wilderness, and instead of living in despair, he turns his eyes to God. Instead of being swept away by the sorrow bound up in the frailty and sinfulness of man and Make no mistake about it, the book of Numbers highlights those two realities in epic proportions. The frailty and sinfulness of man. Moses turns to the, great, the greatness of the one constant that remained in his life in the midst of uncertainty. And who was that one constant church? It was God himself. Addressing God directly, Moses declared, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. A refuge. Now, in one surface and shallow reading of this simple statement, if you don't think much about this declaration, I would just prompt you and encourage you to consider anew the history of God's people that Moses was tasked to lead at this juncture. For 40 years in the wilderness, God's people had no place to call home. They wandered like nomads in the deserts. They had been without any earthly dwelling place on their own. They were not allowed to unpack in order to settle down. They were not allowed to be tied down to one place. They were like a tumbleweed being blown here and there. And in the midst of this vagabond-type existence, Moses acknowledged that his soul rested in God, who was his true dwelling place. What a dwelling place he was, amen? Before the creation of the world, God alone existed. Moses knew this. Before the foundation of the world, before there was anything or anyone, there was God. There was never a time where God was not. This God who is without beginning shall be God throughout all eternity future, never ceasing to be God. And in a world that is constantly changing... He proves to Moses, proves to Israel, and thus proves to us that he is the refuge, the dwelling place that every single one of us needs this morning. He is the dwelling place that we yearn for. Now, church, where this is sobering is that we have a tendency in our sinfulness to get off course, do we not? And how do we get off course? Well, family of God, we get off course when we try to find our refuge in perishable things that will soon pass away. We go off course when we try to find our refuge in lesser rocks when it should be in the one who was and who is and who is to come. I would ask you this morning, before we venture further into this psalm, what about you this morning? Where or what are you putting your hope? Who or what is it that you seek to find refuge in? Is it money, status, relationship, accomplishment? The Lord would encourage you this morning that the person who is anchored to himself, the eternal, unchanging God, is eternally secure. The Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Friends, regardless of what occurs in your life, and regardless of what changes in your life, and if anything over the last two years shows us that in a short snapshot of time, a window of time, there can be a lot that is turned upside down, and a lot that is changing. 
regardless of what takes place in your life, not in the last two years, but even in the years to come. And God knows every one of those moments. God always, always, always proves to be the best of all dwelling places. If I were to give you a pastoral encouragement this morning regarding the practical outworking of what it is to take refuge in this God, it would, it would be this. I don't need to tell every single one of you this morning that we live in a chaotic world. 2020 and 2021 has reminded us of this to a stark degree. Mankind is constantly being threatened by various forms of instability, economic, political, ideological, much of which is all tethered to the philosophies and empty deception that Paul himself warned us in Colossians 2.8 to not be held captive by. On top of that, man is constantly being bearing up under the hardship and misery of sin. You have broken relationships, societal dysfunction, the fear of violence and oppression. So that we oftentimes are like David in Psalm 11:3, Lord, when the foundations of the earth are being destroyed and it feels like they most assuredly are, what can the righteous do? You know what we do? We trust God, rest easy, refuse to panic. We take refuge in He who is our dwelling place. You see, the rest of the world is running headlong to various other mountains and various other lesser rocks to search for safety and security and satisfaction, but they're all mountains of troubling disappointment. People, Substances, government, etc. They're all mountains that fail to offer them the security and satisfaction that they're hoping for. Church, I think the encouragement for us this morning, we do most assuredly live in a, a very chaotic world. But praise God, we do not worship a chaotic God. You are God. Can I just encourage you this week? Tattoo that on the front of your brain. You are God. He is the eternal, unchanging God that can and should be trusted at all times. Living life with this eternal perspective means that we take refuge in this eternal God, but secondly, it also means that we find solace in the sovereignty of God. We find solace in his sovereignty. In verse 3 and onward, in contrast with the stability and eternality of God, Moses directs our attention next to the weakness of man and the brevity of his earthly life. And the truth that he rests in is this God is the one who controls man's days. Look at verse 3. Still addressing and this. God of heaven and earth, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight or like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts, sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. What's Moses doing here? In stark contrast to God, don't you love where he then underscores this very simple truth? God is unchanging. God is eternal. And man is but dust. At the end of man's days, God is the one who created man out of dust, Genesis 2-7. God is the one who returns man back to dust. He formed man out of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life. And over the course of time, he is sovereignly governing and determining the length of man's life. Every single one of his days are divinely determined. And from the perspective of God's infinite eternality, Moses writes that a thousand years of human history is a mere 24-hour day in the sight of God. They're quickly passing away. 
As 2 Peter 3.8 says, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. Moses says they're literally like a three-hour watch in the night. What's being underscored here? Man is transitory, and God is eternal. That, too, needs to be tattooed on the front of your brains. It's a grandiose theme to one of my favorite books in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. Man is transitory, and God is eternal. And this transitory nature is presented to us with two powerful illustrations. Look at the beginning of verse 5. Moses writes and depicts that men's lives are swept away by God in death as being picked up by a powerful flood. We're alive for only a fleeting moment, and man soon closes his eyes in the sleep of death. This is a sobering end that's, for every single one of us, appointed not by man, but by God himself. The second illustration is the end of verse 5 into verse 6. In the arid climate of the ancient Near East, a night rain would often fall, and that would cause a carpet of green grass to spring up in the morning on an otherwise brown and barren hillside. But the blazing daytime sun over the course of the next few hours would often scorch that very grass, and it would soon wither away. And Moses says our lives are a lot like that. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. I'd love to look at young people. And some of you are saying, Wade, you are a young person. It's a matter of perspective, I guess. You feel invincible. I don't feel invincible anymore. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Now church family, you have to remember that the context of Numbers 20 provides painful reminders of this reality. And that's the backdrop of Psalm 90 to be sure. The death of Miriam and Aaron as well as Moses' own pending death reminded him of this. And as you reflect on that, you have to remember a few things. One, whether we live a thousand years, as Methuselah almost did, or whether you live 70 or 80 years that Moses will later reference, it's still just a watch in the night for God. It's still but a day. And the second thing we ought to remember is that however long we live, and God knows that in advance, death comes to everyone. And because death comes to all of us in the end, that which we accomplish in this life will eventually be forgotten by everyone but one. And that one is God. God does not forget what is done. Only what we do for Him will remain as an everlasting accomplishment so that the takeaway for us this morning is this. Christians, how are you using or stewarding your brief life? Are you living for this brief watch in the night? This fleeting moment that's soon to be forgotten? Are you living for that next life, which will last forever? People of God, those are two very different types of living. Perhaps you're here this morning, and part of your trouble is that you strive too hard and spin your wheels too violently in order to try to extend uh, your days in this life. I will say there's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself. But, let's be a people that knows that this life is brief, regardless of how long you live. And God has allotted the exact number of your days. For others of you, as you look around the world around you, perhaps you are here this morning, and part of your trouble is how to live in this bewildered state where you try to understand why one person is able to live into their 90s while another is taken away in their youth. 
We have this secular saying, oh, he was taken before his time. No, he wasn't. The Lord controls our days. What do we do with the observations, the troubling observations that we make in this life when prompted to question the fairness and equity of God? We find solace in His sovereignty. We take refuge in Him. We are comforted by His sovereignty. But third, in living this same life with an eternal perspective, lifting up our hearts to heaven, we are also incredibly sobered by the severity of God. As we move our way to verses 7 through 12, the third section of Psalm 90 recognizes that man's greatest problem is not just his frailty, that is, that he exists for only a short bit of time and is no more, but it's also that he is a sinner and is subject to the just wrath of God. In fact, it is this sin that is the cause of his death and misery. Moses must have undoubtedly been thinking of the fall of Adam and Eve when he wrote this, Keep in mind, this is the very person who wrote Genesis 3 to begin with. But he was also undoubtedly reflecting on his own sin of striking that rock and of God's judgment which kept him from the promised land. And Moses here confesses that the sin of the people had provoked God's anger, just as we read of earlier in Deuteronomy 32. And this anger had shortened their lives. Look at verse 7. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. It makes no difference. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Church family, this is a profound set of statements to be sure. Not only has Moses set the weakness of man and the shortness of his life against the grandeur and eternality of God. But he also traced man's mortality back to its roots and its rightful roots. The reality is that death is linked to sin and is caused by it. We die, Romans 5, because Adam sinned and because we thereafter him have all sinned ourselves, fallen short of his glory. And Moses, most assuredly, this man of God, as Psalm 90 describes him, was painfully, painfully aware of this reality. You remember in the Sinai wilderness, Israel's sin provoked God's divine anger leading to their death. God's people were consumed and dismayed. They were terrified in the face of God's divine severity. Their unbelief and their idolatry offended God. It had aroused His anger. So that it caused an entire generation to die in the wilderness without ever entering into the promised land. Exhibit A of that was Moses himself. Moses explains, and he felt this keenly, that God had set our iniquities before him. God saw all their unbelief, every measure of their grumbling, both spoken and unspoken, every murmuring disobedience, every act of rebellion, inward and outward. God knew it all. As Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open, all things, church, all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of whom with whom we must give an account. 
Church family, are you sobered by the severity of God this morning? All things are laid bare. Secret sins hidden on the earth are painfully exposed in the blinding light of His holy presence. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. So that all of us should be sobered this morning as we read this passage. These things were written for our instruction. They were an example to us. Because why? This is the same unchanging, eternal God that we just finished worshiping in song. And what is the result? What is the byproduct of having our sin laid before God? All a man's days pass away. They decline, as Moses wrote, under his wrath or fury. Human life is shortened because it's spent under God's judgment upon man's sin. This is why even the most God-fearing of men have only a limited time to live on earth. For some, an average lifespan is 70 years and For others, it may be 80 years, and in the end, it makes no difference, really. The best that man has to show for his life, in the spirit of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, is labor and sorrow. And we're prompted to think, what a massive, massive disappointment. Labor and sorrow? And Moses says, in light of this Sobering reality. Lord, who is it that rightly takes to heart the full intensity of your holy anger against sin? And the answer was, no one. No one. God, Moses said in verse 11 that no one gives God the fear that is rightly due him. None of us fully understands or comprehends God's fear of wrath against our sin when our response to it in any given moment, with a fitting degree of reverence that he rightfully deserves. And since this is the case, notice Moses' response. Lord, since none of us fully understand the magnitude of your severity, Lord, since none of us therefore rightly revere you as we should, Lord, would you teach us? Don't you love that? Father, we have not arrived. Would you have mercy? And would you teach us? He petitions to God in verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days. That is, since none of us fear the Lord, and none of us are sobered by the severity of God as we should be, Lord, we need to be taught and instructed. We need to be led by you to number our days on earth because they are few. To which we ask, well, in being taught, what is it, in fact, to be, to be a person who numbers their days? Well, I would assure you this morning, it's not simply keeping count on a calendar. It's not checking them off as we go along and subtracting it from our allowed 70 or 80 years. No, numbering our days means that we weigh them and we value them each day as we should. We live mindful that our life is brief and our God is severe so that we do what? So that we are careful not to waste this life on temporal things and instead invest this life on that which will last. That's is the implication. And once each of us learn to number our days, then and only then can we present to God a heart of wisdom. Until then, otherwise, we are presenting to Him a heart of foolishness. I would ask you this morning, for this given week, what kind of heart did you present to God? Were you a person who numbered their days? Or were you are lured away by the trinkets of this life? Lesser, lesser things. You think Moses understood this deeply? Most assuredly he did. This is where again Numbers 20 
being the backdrop of this psalm, sheds important light on this psalm. Miriam and Aaron have just died, and Moses is about to die. And Aaron and Miriam's death take up only a few verses in the Bible, but make no mistake about it, this would have been a terrible loss for God's servant Moses. Miriam was the leading female character during the time of the Exodus. And even though she was not perfect by a mile, having led Aaron in that unwarranted rebellion against Moses' rightful authority in Numbers chapter 12, she must have been close to Moses. and was one of the few people along with Aaron that could reminisce about their former life in Egypt. When you think about Aaron, Aaron, Moses had served with him for 40 years. He was the last of his father's family, his father's family. And both of their death, as well as Moses' pending death, were massive reminders of God's judgment on that generation, that none should enter Canaan. What's the takeaway for you and I as we kind of connect to Moses as he wrote Psalm 90? It is this. It makes no difference who you are this morning. Death is inescapable. God has declared that man, all man, is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27 And because death is inescapable, the most important thing to do in this life is what, people of God? Is to prepare oneself for that day. How do you prepare yourself? You have a moment in your life in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you declare, rock of ages, cleft from me. Lord, let me hide myself in thee. There's no other place to hide. Be of sin a double cure. You're the only cure. Save me from thy wrath, which is to come. What does that look like? You avail yourself to the mercy that's found in the rock of our salvation. And there is only one rock, and his name is Jesus Christ. He left the glories of heaven. He lived the life that you could not live and did for you what you could not do. Obeying God's law in every way, he laid down his life willingly on a cross so that everyone who would place their trust in him would have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. How do you prepare yourself for that day, death which is inescapable? You repent of your rebellion and you place your trust, your confidence alone in he who is the rock of our salvation, Jesus himself. Today can be that day for you, most assuredly. And I would plead for you for it to be that day. Moses looked forward to that rock. Moses knew that rock. And Moses painfully was aware of what it was to place your trust in lesser rocks. These things were written as an example for us and were for our instruction. Moses' sin in striking that rock in Numbers 20, instead of speaking to it, his sin is what kept him from entering into the promised land. Numbers 20, 12, God says, Because of your unbelief, you will not enter in. And we can sympathize with Moses when you read that occasion, can we not? In our sin, we can even begin to think that God's judgment is unfair. I mean, Moses is almost 120 years old at this time. For 38 years, he had wandered around a, a wilderness looking forward to the conquest of Canaan when this journey could have taken just a few short months. And he had been patient all this time, but at last his patience broke. And he not only failed to believe and trust in God in that instance, he also tried to usurp God's rightful place. This was a sad failure on Moses' part, people of God. And God took it seriously. Why? Because God always, always takes sin seriously. With God, no sin is unimportant. 
When we read of this account, these things are as an example to us. What are we compelled to do? Be sobered by the severity of God and take our sin seriously. Living life with an eternal perspective entails that we do just that. But it also entails forth and finally that we remain desperate, desperate for the mercy of God. The fourth section of Psalm 90, verses 13 through 17, is an appeal to God for an outpouring of His grace. One, that they would be satisfied with God Himself, and that their work might endure as something of lasting value, even though they they themselves quickly pass away. Let's look at that now in verse 13. Notice the immediate outcry for mercy. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Do return. Father, Lord, relent. Or literally return to us with divine grace before you return us to to dust. Lord, would you do that? The people of God had gone a very, very long time under God's discipline without his blessing. And Moses now asked for mercy. And his request is twofold. He's already asked that God would teach them to number their days. Now he asks that, number one, that he would satisfy them with his unfailing love. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Having held up the backdrop of his own impermanence and sinfulness against the backdrop of God's permanence and holiness, what is it that Moses knows? Moses knows that joy and gladness is beyond his earthly reach. And he knows that to try to find such in the here and now is not only futile, but woefully, woefully disappointing. Moses wants to be able to sing for joy. He wants to be glad even in the light of one's own frailty and impermanence. And he knows what all of us knows, that such joy... And such gladness is only found in one. You are God. Verse 14, O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Lord, bring as much gladness as we have known sadness, and we have known a lot of sadness over 40 years. Lord, satisfy us. We've tried to be satisfied with lesser things, and we have been consumed by your anger. They are all full of empty promises, and they have woefully disappointed us. Lord, would you satisfy us? Alexander McLaren, in his old commentary on Psalm, wrote this, The only, only thing that will secure lifelong gladness of heart is to be satisfied with the experience of God's love. The only thing that will secure lifelong gladness of heart is to be satisfied with the experience of God's love. Friends and people of God, this means that nothing will satisfy your human heart except God and God himself. What then is the implication or takeaway to this truth? Stop trying to fill your life with lesser things. Moses, and most importantly, our great and majestic God, would say, stop trying to fill your life with lesser things. Stop running after which does not last. Stop obsessing over what will not satisfy. Don't put your hope in other people. Why? Because they too are going to die. Augustine prayed, God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they find rest in you. You made us for yourself, 
And our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Lord, would you satisfy us? Is that your prayer this morning? If it is, praise God. If it's not, may it be so. And if it's so, and he causes it to be so, may it be followed by the prayer that your your work and the work of your hands would be established. Establish the work of our hands. At last, with his weakness and sin before him, secret sins laid bare before the light of his presence, Moses appeals to the grace of God to make what he had been trying to do for God worthwhile. Yes, God, I am temporary, and yes, God, I am frail, and you most assuredly know I am sinful. Would you have mercy and establish the work of my hands? As you teach me to number my days. Look at verse 16. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. And yes, confirm the work of our hands. This is Moses, church, praying in a sense, Lord, in your kindness... Would you please cause us to stop wandering around aimlessly in the wilderness? Return to us. Lord, lead us into that land where there is fullness of blessing. Lord, establish the work of our hands that what we do for you, Lord, would prove effective. Lord, that what we do for you would prove to be enduring. Lord, would you establish the work of our hands? Northlake, know this, God does not need anything from you. Nothing. He's able to raise up children to Abraham from stones. But if God has put us in this life to do something good for him, and he has, then it's important that we do those things and do it well. Amen? And if those efforts are going to culminate into anything praiseworthy and anything enduring and effective and projecting the majesty of God while we are on this earth, what will happen is because our, our great God, He who is God, will cause it to be so. He will extend His favor and confirm for us the work of our hands. May I ask you this morning, is that what you want for your life? For God to do that for you? Do you want your life in the here and now to have meaning and substance? Do you want it to count? And do you want it to be a blessing to others long after you're gone? People of God, the only way that happens is if God establishes your work. Grandparents, parents, children. Here's the beauty around the relevancy, the timeless relevancy of God's word. It doesn't matter who you are and how far in life you may be. All of us ought to be desperate for the mercy of God in this regard. Satisfy us, and Lord, would you establish us. But wait, I've wasted a lot, a lot of these days which are numbered. You know what my encouragement would be to you? Be the same encouragement God would extend. One, friend, there's grace. Amen? And two, our God is faithful. And even if it's Him using in glorious fashion that final laugh that you are to run, may you run it well, with vigor, and diligence, desperate for his mercy that he would satisfy you even in this last chapter and establish the work of your hands. May he do that so that those who come after you would be a blessing. Children, grandchildren. And may he do so that when you, so that when you die and you appear before God the Father and all of us will, you will hear all of those words that we desire to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
Well done. Come and share in your master's happiness. Don't you want to hear that this morning? Church, this is how you live with an eternal perspective. You and I live life knowing that we are frail and sinful, and we thus need the eternal God as our dwelling place. And it's then and only then can we live in hope and blessing. My encouragement to you this morning as we sing in just a moment, Your will be done, is that you would take close note of Psalm Psalm 90. You would reflect upon it deeply. You would learn from it. You would adopt it in your life to the end that when all is said and done, your life will not have been wasted. Lord, teach us to number our days. Church family, if you'll stand to your feet, let's ask and now seeing that the Lord's will would be done as the music team comes. Lord, we thank you for the example of those before us. We thank you that you have given us a glorious book from cover to cover. You've given us a book that's filled with tremendous triumph in yourself. But you've also given us a book filled with failure after failure by the hands of very sinful men. Lord, your word tells us that we are all a part of that camp. And we are all a part of that team. That all of us fall short of your glory. And sin against this, our wonderful God who made us. Lord, we want to thank you for much of what we sang. We want to thank you that you provided a way or provision so that we could be reconciled with you, a holy God, through the finished, wonderful, sufficient work of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. You are the rock of our salvation. It's been a delight to sing of that this morning, to revel in it, and even now as we sing and pray, we ask that this would be our prayer in closing as we embark upon this week. Lord, would your will be done in our life? Which really is, in a sense, just a song declaring Psalm 90. Lord, teach us, satisfy us, and establish the work of our hands. Lord, we pray this not for our glory, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.